You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is Daniel Howitt's interview with the director for A House Made of Splinters, Simon Lorraine Wilmot. Каждый ребенок оставляет неизгладимый след на стенах приюта, на нас и на друзья, которых они находят здесь. Что? Оно касается только тебя. Жизнь здесь всегда была тяжелой, но война сделала все еще хуже. Но надежда все еще мерцает здесь. Это правда? Правда, правда. Да, да. Как говорится в пословице. Надежда. Simon, congratulations on your Oscar nomination. So well deserved. Uh, what's it been like to just receive all this recognition for a house made of splinters? It's been quite overwhelming, actually, and also a little bit surprising. I wasn't counting on actually being one of the five nominated, uh, but honestly, it's been incredible, especially with the with the response from Ukraine. Also, all the people. People I know there and all the country is going pretty, pretty crazy about it. So that's really nice to be able to give them that. Where were you when you found out about the Oscar nomination? Uh, I was at work. I was actually editing a trailer for a, a director friend of mine uh, out in the middle of some industrial complex uh, where he has his office. Um And him and his assistant had promised me not to uh, to have the live uh, announcements going because I, I kind of didn't expect it and I just wanted to work in peace. And then all of a sudden, you know, they started screaming downstairs and going completely mad. And I got so angry at them and, I, you know, yelled at them. They shouldn't make fun of things like this. And then they took up the computer and showed me, you know, what it says so on the screen. And that's when I started it started slowly to sink in. That's amazing. Well, so excited for the nomination. I love the film. Uh, this is your second documentary feature uh, made in Ukraine. What, what's drawn you to, to this country and this people? In the beginning, it was mostly because I, I got, for various reasons, I got really interested in figuring out uh, if, you're, if you're a child growing up in a conflict zone, Where do you go? What's the survival instinct uh, and tactics to where do you go to to get that comfort that I think you you would need to grow up without too many scars on the soul? Uh, but once I got there, uh, I fell in love with the area uh, and especially also, you know, the people there are amazing. They can be a little standoffish in the beginning, but once you kind of get past that initial cold facade, maybe, It's it's such a beautiful people, uh, warm-hearted, easy to laughter, great humor, and just really welcoming. 
And how did you discover the orphanage at the center of your film? For various reasons, I wanted to 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 know, you know, what happens to kids along the the then front line of the war in eastern Ukraine if there are no adults left uh, to take care of them. So I asked my amazing Ukrainian assistant director to see if he could kind of figure it out. And very quickly, he came back to me and and she said, you know, you're actually welcome up in the northern parts of the front line uh, near Sivadonetsk and Lysychansk. They're really open to showing you around and trying to answer your question. Uh, so we went uh, and we visited a lot of orphanages, uh, state-run orphanages uh, up there. And most of them are maybe much more institutionalized, big buildings that are very good at taking care of the of the physical needs of the kids, but maybe not so much uh, focused on the emotional needs. Uh, so I was actually almost packing up and going home because I don't do films without hope or some kind of light in the darkness. Um, but then they took me to uh, Margarita's shelter. And the second I stepped over the threshold to, to her shelter, I could feel, you know, there's something different here. Uh, yeah, it was small and it was worn out, but there were kids' drawings on the wall and, and young kids running around, screaming, laughter, playing. And in one room, there was an elderly, beautiful lady who was, who was trying to teach some of the girls music. And at the end of the hallway was Margarita, who was, you know, hugging two kids fiercely while she was shouting in the phone at some parent who, who, who had done something she didn't approve of. Uh, and it just struck me right away, you know, uh, there's something different here, uh, something good here. Uh, and I want to figure out, is it just today because I'm here? Or if not, if it's like this every day, what makes this shelter so special? Mm. And, and there are so many children in this orphanage, but you're able to highlight a few, you know, sort of main characters, uh, Sasha, Kolya and, and others throughout the film. How did you gravitate? toward those few who became a bigger focus? Uh, it's a mix of a lot of different uh, things, uh, Daniel. Um, mostly, first of all, it's whether or not the kids are interested in us as well. Um, are, are they curious and, and are they open to, to sharing your, you know, the stories about their lives and their hopes and their dreams and their fears, you know? Um, but then for Eva, for example, it was the her eyes, mostly so expression of uh, so much expression in them. And the way she does cartwheels, it would be whether she was in a bad mood, it was almost to get all the sadness out of her. And if it was a good mood, you know, it was to try and get all the joy to contain the joy in, them in some ways. With Sasha, it was because she reminded me actually of my 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 younger cousin. Um, and also when she came to the shelter, she, uh, contrary to a lot of the other kids, she wasn't sad or unhappy, more intrigued and, and wondering, you know, about what is this strange place she's been put. Um, but she didn't really interact with, with, with any of the others. She was so used to taking care of only herself, which I found was, uh, was tremendously, uh, intriguing. And, uh, then Kolya. <laughs> he reminds me of, of of the boys, you know, that I would want to hang out with when when I was his age, you know, a little bit of a hoodlum, but all, always up for adventure. And you could be sure that, you know, you would have a great time with him. But then when when I saw, you know, also 
how how loving and caring and tender he was uh, when he was taking care of his two younger siblings. I thought that contrast in character was 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 really interesting. It's interesting that you say you you also wanted to see them being drawn to you a little bit as well. I'd love to hear more about that. How did the children react to your presence there? And how were you able to either calm them or or help them be as authentic as possible? Um, I do my own shooting uh, or filming. Um, it's only me and my Ukrainian assistant director there who, who also functions as, as an interpreter when I need it. So we're a super small crew. Uh, and we spend uh, a, a huge amount of time just hanging out with the kids and uh, goofing around and entertaining them, but also being interested in their lives. And I think that these kids really, oh, they really, uh, they they really want somebody to see them, to really see them, uh, if that makes sense, um, to really be interested um, in who they are. Uh, and obviously, there's some mutual trust that we need to build between us, and that also takes time. Um, but it's about being true to to your word. For example, you, we made a great deal of of letting them know that if there was something they didn't want us to film, uh, they should just you know put up their hand or say stop or just simply walk away. And in those few incidents uh, where they actually did this. You know, it's so important for me to stay true to my word and just put down the camera and say, okay, I'm not going to film this no matter how great a scene it could be, uh, because that's how you build that mutual, mutual trust. And in the end, I felt like they were always really happy to see us because we were a, a super nice distraction from their reality. Um, and and obviously, we get close and and... And uh, at some point, when the more raw emotional uh, situations start happening, you know, I, I think that they feel that we're we're more support than, than we're just somebody, you know, trying to film their lives and trying to get something from them, but that they know that we're actually there for them if they need us to. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. I'm curious, with a story like this, how do you know when you're done filming? You said that that finding that sliver of hope in, in your work is so important. How, do you, how did you know when you, were, when you were done? Well, there is kind of like a inbuilt uh, narrative structure in this uh, in this story that's there from the very beginning uh, you know a kid enters it has to be there uh, or can only be in margarita's shelter for nine months and then one way or the other the kid will have one of three results of one of three ways of of leaving margarita's place that is either the parent soap us up or 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 
starts to behave themselves and they can go back home or or the state adopts the kid because uh, the parent is not able to take care of them or a foster family steps in and uh, and and claims custody over over the child so it's a matter of filling up those nine months uh, so to speak with exactly trying to figure out for each of the kids that that I chose you know what is it that makes them so beautiful and so special and and uh, and how do they react to to the challenges that they face and and how does the friendships uh, or loves that they form what 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 kind of uh, aspect does that take when did you end up wrapping production on the film was it before the invasion last february yeah, it was quite a while before actually. I, if I if I'm not mistaken, we wrapped the um, we wrapped uh, the the filming one trip after Collier was taken uh, to the state orphanages. We we went to see him once, one trip, but we only went to see him uh, to see if there was something we needed as a fi- as a, a final for him more than him just leaving. Uh, uh, Margarita's shelter. Uh, so that would be October 2000, I think, 2020, yeah. I'd love to hear about your your process of working with your editors on the film as well. Were you sort of writing an outline for the film as you went along? I know you, you kept a rough chronology of events. It was pretty much in chronological order. Uh, but did you sort of plot it out with your editors after the fact? Uh, actually, I work a lot with Michael Olon, my amazing editor. Also, uh, uh, while I'm shooting, from from trip to trip, uh, I always go back and I share my thoughts and my insights and my discoveries and my challenges <laughs> that that I'm facing with him. So, he, in in a way, he's he's actually on board from the very beginning, uh, or almost the very beginning of every project that we do together. Uh, but he starts editing when there are, you know, when we feel that there's maybe one third of the uh, uh, of the shooting left still, uh, so that that he stills wise to, you know, what are we going to do with the end? And as you asked, for example, exactly, you know, when do we stop filming? When do we have enough? Um, but in this film, uh, the chronology of uh, of the kids' cases and. Uh, the the clear desire for both of us that we wanted to stay true to 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 what happens to the kids and in in what order does it happen? Um, that meant that the that it's more a question of carving out each child's specific story and what's the most important in that story and taking away the clutter, so to speak, so they stand as as uh, as as pure uh, storylines, the three of them. Well, the storylines are so impactful. It's it's amazing to hear you talk earlier about uh, the support you're you're receiving from Ukraine itself. Um, and I understand you recently screened the film in Kiev. Uh, what what was that experience like for you? It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. Uh, you know, it, it was in October, and it was, you know, in the year of the of the terrible war that Russia started on on Ukraine. And and I had spent most of that year worrying, trying to help and trying to figure out how can I get as much help to the country and to the ones that I'm so close to, all the people, the kids at the front line and and, and my colleagues, you know. 
Um, so actually getting a chance to go to Kiev and to screen the film and for the uh, political establishment also to 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 see it. Um, and most of all, to meet all my friends, uh, uh, it was absolutely incredible. It seemed like almost Kiev had an extra sort of warm glow at that <laughs> point in time. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, and that's one of the reasons that films like yours are so powerful is is that in places like America, there's a danger that countries at war start to sound very far off and distant and and maybe it becomes dangerously easy to tune out the humanity in places like Ukraine. And so what do you want people to know about the people of Ukraine that they might not be able to get just by watching the news? I think what what documentary can that news struggles with once in a while is to to get us really, really close uh, over a long period of time to our main characters in the film, which means that when we spend so much time being involved in their lives, we get to know them, we get to befriend them almost from afar. We start to feel a lot stronger feelings for these people, which we've only met on the silver screen, you know, uh, that that it engages us even more. It engages our own feelings, like if they were friends from the neighborhood or something like this. And for me, that's the beautiful thing about documentary, that across borders, across countries far away from each other, we can reflect each other in our universal humanities. And and uh, and we understand that 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 uh, even though we might have different color of skin or we speak a different language, we're so much alike in 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 what we need for for ourselves and our loved ones to be happy and uh, yes yeah, to to live our lives peacefully. You know, that's beautiful. Well, Simon, uh, your your film did exactly that, and I'm so grateful for your work and grateful that more people are discovering the film and that you're getting the recognition uh, you deserve. So, thank you so much again, and I appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Daniel. It's been a pleasure. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to Daniel Howitt's interview with the director for A House Made of Splinters, Simon Lorang Wilmot, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. A House Made of Splinters is up for your consideration for this year's Academy Awards for Best Documentary Feature Film. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we will see you all next time.
I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.